This morning, I want to just uh, take some time to, as I said to you, we would look into uh, another story of Moses this morning as sort of a link sermon between God's rights over ours and where we are going with truth and what God wants us to, to believe about truth. So this is really, because it's so early in 2017, kind of a mini uh, mini vision review of, of what we do here at church, what, what is our ministry model, um, making sure that we're all on the same page, biblically understanding what's the vision of our church, what are we trying to accomplish, what do we believe are the most, the critical things that we're to accomplish together in terms of our methodology of doing church together because I've been told that vision leaks and so we want to patch up some of the holes in the boat and make sure that we're still floating and so this is an important link for us to what is our ministry model to make sure we all know what that is and, and is it biblical and can we make a case for what we are doing here, what our emphasis are uh, on a bi- on, in, the, in the matter of uh, a case for it being of, from the scriptures. And um, not only can we make a case from it, for it from the scriptures, but we can make a case for it from both the Old Testament and New Testament, which is rather interesting. The ministry model often we think is only grabbed from the New Testament theology, but a ministry model for church is also brought forward from the Old Testament. God has continued to work with his people in the same way in terms of the model of ministry. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please look at Exodus chapter 18? We want to go there and uh, we want to ask the question, what must we do? Now, Exodus chapter 18 finds us in the place immediately following or shortly, say a month, maybe a month and a half after Israel has been liberated from Egypt. After Moses, you know, last week we talked about him going into 40 years of wilderness. He's now come out of the 40 years. Not only has he come out of the 40 years, but he's, he's now led Israel out of Egypt. And so really we're asking a question, what must we do? on the heels or, or following our salvation because this is a, a lesson to us in Exodus chapter 18 of what we should be doing uh, once we have uh, been rescued from ourselves and our sin and brought into God's salvation. Israel had been rescued from slavery to Egypt and now has been rescued and now have been brought into freedom, freedom to worship God. And so we have this most significant moment um, where uh, in chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses encounters God at a burning bush. You all know that story where it says there that, that Moses is, uh, it says in Mount Horeb or the foot of Mount Horeb, but then it says at the mountain of God. And whenever the mountain of God is referred to, it is actually Mount Sinai because Mount Horeb is kind of the mountain range, but Mount Sinai is a specific mountain where God gave to Moses uh, the law and, and wrote it with his own hand. And so Moses has gone to the burning bush, has been given the commission of God at the, the foot of Mount Sinai, at the burning bush, and God said, this will be a sign to you that my promise is fulfilled when my people are here at the foot of Mount Sinai worshiping me freely. And when we get to Exodus chapter 18, we find ourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai where the people of God have been rescued and now this is the great sign, the sign of their salvation that they have been rescued and brought into this awareness of God and now they've been delivered into this great salvation gathering, this 
wonderful and awesome celebration of God's people saying we were once slaves but now we are free and so they gathered to worship God and Jethro the father-in-law of Moses choreographs this great worship gathering this sign of the promise of God and what he has done for us. Uh, This isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. This gathering uh, of saved people at the foot of Mount Sinai wasn't to be a one-time event, but rather it was to be a repeated event in the hearts and lives of God's people throughout the ages. I'm not sure if you understand the continuity between what happened here and where we find ourselves this morning, but we are literally gathered together today at the foot of Mount Sinai as God's people celebrating our salvation. We've come together to thank the Lord in this worship service that once we were slaves to ourselves and to our sinfulness, and once we were under the wrath of God, but now we have been rescued. We've been set free from his wrath. We've been set free from the power of sin. We've been set free from our selfishness, and now here we are gathering this morning, worshiping our great God together. And we are a a witness to each other, but we are also a witness to our community of what God has done in our lives regularly. I hear people say from, uh, to me in the community, oh, you're a pastor of that church. You know, I, we drive by that church sometimes and we see so many cars there on Sundays. It's just amazing. And these are people who don't know the Lord. They say, what's going on there? Well, I'll tell you what's going on in there. It's a celebration of our salvation, how we've been rescued and, and brought into a, a relationship with the living Christ. That's why it's, it doesn't make any sense to, to miss out Sundays or for Sunday gathering uh, to worship to be sort of some sort of option on the weekend. This is the, this is the apex of who we are. We are sending a message to, to heaven of thanksgiving. We are sending a message to each other, reminding each other of what we really have, regardless of how tough our life is or regardless of how difficult things have been. We know we have this salvation, rescue from sins, rescue from ourselves, rescue from the wrath of God eternal life and so we gather but we're also a testimony to the people who are driving by every Sunday morning who don't know the living Christ they drive by here you know and they look at our parking lot and they see all kinds of cars here and they ask the question what's going on that's so important in that building that these this many people would gather in that place there are people who are in churches that are not like ours churches that don't hold fast to the teachings of scripture churches that are not thankful for their thank, for their salvation and there are pastors who've asked us the question how come your parking lot is full of cars and our parking lot virtually has no cars i'll tell you why because we teach about salvation we teach about the gathering and celebrating of our salvation we have a mount sinai experience on Sunday mornings. That's why we gather together. What we must do is make the great declarations that our Lord is awesome and a saving God. And so uh, as we pick up the text here, uh, it says in verse 1, now Jethro, the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And after Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, which means expulsion. For Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God, or Mount Sinai, And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. 
So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now listen to what he says. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. How are they going to know? How are the people driving by this church going to know? Unless they see the great works of God and the great gatherings of God's people and the commitment that we have. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in in the presence of God. Let's stop there for a moment. Just make a few observations. This is sort of, there's sort of a watershed moment in this text. The, The great apex of the text is found in verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. That's the great declaration and exclamation of this text. It's what God intends to demonstrate every day of our lives, that he is the great one. He is the great I am. He is the great creator of all. He is the saving God, that his name might be proclaimed and that he might be demonstrated in our lives as great and through our lives as great. So we have this kind of watershed moment where a Midianite is extolling the greatness of God. Now, as teachers of the Word of God should always do, I thought I'd better check out context in this text to make sure that I'm teaching you what it's really talking about. And so I flipped back a chapter and started to read, and my heart was incredibly grieved. I read this text, and I was all excited. Wow, this is great, praising God, choreographing a worship service, organizing sacrifice and all of that. This is so awesome. And then I read chapter 17 and I was so discouraged. And the reason I read, I was so discouraged is because when I was reading about God's people and how they were reacting, they were complaining and grumbling and putting God on trial. God's people put God on trial. There's a crisis of faith going on. They have no sooner been rescued by the great saving hand of God out of the clutches of the Egyptians, rescued through the Red Sea. In chapter 16, they're complaining and grumbling about the food and about God's care for them and and complaining about leadership and grumbling and griping and putting God on trial. They actually came to the place where they said, is God really among us? It's only been a month and a half, folks, since you saw water part and you walked through it and you're asking the question, is God among us? What is wrong with God's people? What's wrong with us? We see the big hand of God and what he's done for us in the past. And we have a faith crisis within a month and a half. They, they didn't even wait to see what God could do. In fact, they assumed that he couldn't do it. Is God really among us? They asked the question. The very people who had witnessed firsthand the saving work of God, like us, If you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus Christ today, you have witnessed firsthand the saving power of God in your life. You have witnessed what 
he can do to change a life and to rescue you from eternal death. And they put Yahweh the, to, on trial. And here we have, in contrast, a foreign man, a Midianite, praising God for what he has heard that he has done. He, he just heard of the great things that God had done. He hadn't experienced them. He just heard of them. And he says, we, we got to create... We, we need to choreograph a worship service, Moses. I need to bring sacrifices to this God because this God is the greatest God of all gods. God is pleased to extend his grace to the nations. This is the uh, first contrast to demonstrate that God's people complain and grumble and gripe and put God on trial faithlessly. And God, who's promised to be a missionary God, because he told Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. And here we have these first glimpses throughout the scriptures that Israel was to be a missionary nation, that the church is to be a missionary church because God is a missionary God. And a foreign man gives praise to God. God regularly rescues someone like that to shame his people. Let me ask you something this morning. What should God have done last year to enable you to have faith in him this year? What more did he need to do? What, what, what more did he need to do than save your soul from eternal damnation? Rescue you from the power or clutches of sin that you might be able to live a life purely before him. What more did God need to do for you to have faith in him this year? What are we doing? Moses' father-in-law, after crafting this worship service, he says to uh, Moses, I, I, you know, it's fantastic what God has done, but I've got some problems with what you're doing. And thankfully, Moses had been in the wilderness 40 years, and he'd become very humble by now, and so he received the teaching with humility. And so should we. Here's what he says. The next day, verse 13, if your Bibles are still open, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, let's hang on every word, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? So twice morning till evening is, is emphasized. Twice for the people is emphasized. And Moses answered him, because the people come to, to me to seek God's will, which is a good thing. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. That's another good thing, because the people are coming to him to measure the standard of their lives against the standard of God's word, which is excellent. No criticism there. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. What? No, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. 
Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them the decrees and laws. Show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain or can't be bribed, in other words, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands you, or God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. And here's what Moses did. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. This is God's word. I want to make a few observations here. Because the question remains, how are we showing the world the greatness of God as a church? When we're talking about vision, who we are to be, what are we to be doing? They met up, first of all, with a faith crisis. Now they've got a practice crisis. What they're doing is not good. And maybe what we're doing is not good. How do we measure ourselves against God's word? Well, one of the things that we can see that they were doing that was wrong here is they were living their spiritual lives vicariously through a spiritual leader. He was a substitute for them. They, they all stood around him, Moses, one guy, morning till evening. All, all Moses was doing for the people is emphasized. Verse 13. Secondly, we probably or we may be letting someone else do all the heavy spiritual lifting. It is a natural tendency for people in the, in, the, in the church to just sort of entrust just a few to do all of the heavy work, a few to do the, the hard things. Well, you know, I can't talk to somebody about Jesus. You go talk to somebody about Jesus. We, we, we let everybody else do the spiritual lifting and his, his, his heavy lifting. His father-in-law noted that. He says, you alone... You can't do this. You're wearing yourself out. And all the people are standing around from morning till evening. The work is too heavy for you. The task is too heavy for you. This is not good where a few are expected to carry the weight of the, of the eternal. The third thing that, that we perhaps are doing wrong and they were doing wrong is, is that we are, we are satisfied with addition even though God wants multiplication. God demonstrates with this new way, uh, this new model that Moses needed to spread himself out so that more people would be affected uh, in the same amount of time. Moses, one by one by one by one. Rather, multiply yourself, Moses. See, the problem is that uh, in churches, we, um, we have uh, allowed ourselves to fall into forms that are not biblical and not healthy. Edmund Chan, who passed, the pastor Edmund Chan, who came to us for their global conference, who we love so much, he wrote a, a fascinating and a v- excellent book called A Certain Kind of Christian. And um, in, in the book, he adapted some things from his book, but conventional church values are these. Uh, the very way that we are doing things is the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. It's not a biblical pattern, but we continue to do it. I'm not saying Calvary because we've been working very hard not to, but, but this is what we face and this is why we bring ourselves back and say, are we doing what the Bible tells us to do? And, and in a conventional way, uh, churches make converts. They create programs. 
20% do 80% of the work, 80% of the sacrificing, 80% of the giving. They're laity-led and clergy-driven. They're dispensers of information. Oh, how addicted we are to knowledge. How much we want to learn. Just teach me more things. Teach me more things. We're in an information age. We just want to keep learning and soaking ourselves with, with learning. Let me learn more about the Bible. And then we... Um, in, in, in trying to ascertain whether or not the church is effective or successful, we ask the question, how many people do we have? Or we have an unclear discipleship plan. And so uh, the church in the Old Testament at the foot of Mount Sinai was struggling from these same problems. And so Moses' father-in-law says, Moses, listen to me. Things need to change. God's about to do something spectacular and, and Mount Sinai was looming and Moses was going to be called unto Mount Sinai and, and, and uh, the word of God was going to be now recorded and the people were going to have it in God's progressive revelation. It was always God's intention that the word of God would be written on the hearts of his people, that they would, that they would know him personally, each of them. God, um, the correct way to... to, to have a ministry model that you might teach people what God really is designing, what God really wants is that, that God does not want to go through human, a human agent to get to you. Uh, God's intention is that he wants an intimate, personal connection with you. That's the, the message of the Old Testament moves through to the New Testament with greater clarity. In fact, it, it is already in, in its kernel phase right here in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole idea that we will all be priests, that means we all have access to God, that we're all intended to go, uh, to go before God uh, personally. We don't have to get into a box and slide across a curtain and, and go between some person and God. We as priests, each one of you who know Jesus Christ is a priest of God. The church had become very sloppy, very insular, very um, uh, administrative in the Middle Ages, and, and we are celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, where Martin Luther nailed his theses to the Wittenberg door because he had noticed that the church that he was a part of was no longer functioning according to the Scriptures. And so he breathed life into the church to remind that, that the church had become, had become distant, the, the laity had become separated from the priesthood, and the leaders of the church were keeping the Bible, the Word of God, away from the people by keeping it in a language they did not understand, and there was this effort to, to, to control the people rather than, than celebrate the fact that our salvation brings us into a personal relationship with the living Christ, and we are now priests of of God, all of us, we're all saints of God, and we're all priests of God. The priesthood of the believer is a ministry model that Jesus Christ died to give us. But they were standing around, waiting, and at their time, Moses was their mediator. Now Jesus is our mediator to the Father. But God also wants dependence on him, John 15, 5. They were depending on Moses. 
The ministry model that God wants us to have is to depend on him and to learn to depend on him. In, in John 15, 5, that great text about the vine and us clinging to that, being branches to the vine, that we learn, that we learn that empowerment from God comes from our personal connectedness to God. That is not something that someone else can do for you. That is something that has to be personal with you. Jesus says in that very parable of clinging to the vine, he says, without me you can do nothing. What you are doing, Moses, for the people is not good. And then the third thing that God wants is that he wants the kingdom, us to know that kingdom work is to be delegated. Christianity is, is a delegated thing. It is handed off. Go and make disciples. Who will make disciples? Who will make disciples? It's a, it's a delegation. Our, we follow the marching orders of our king every single day. He gives us our work orders. Go and make disciples who are going to make disciples. The task is too great for you, but, but God's math is that the task would be shared by all of us and among all of us. God's math for evangelism is one person goes and reaches one person, and now you have two people who know the Lord. And those two people go and reach one person each, and now you have four people who know the Lord. And those four people go and meet and, 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 and go and reach someone for Christ, and now you have eight people for the Lord. And then you have 16, you, then you have 32, and it's a multiplication. That's the math that God has set up for us. And by the way, if you do that multiplication, it's not long before the whole world encounters the truth of Jesus Christ. Whether they respond or not is not our responsibility. It's that they know who the living God is. And so in contrast to the, the conventional uh, uh, church, there's a disciple-making values church, which is what God has called us to be in his word. Uh, rather than make converts, we're called to make disciples. Rather than create programs, we're called to make sure God's people are mature. Rather than 20% doing 80% of the work, 20% equip and 80% do the ministry. It's to be clergy-led and laity-driven as opposed to laity-led and clergy-driven. Rather than dispensing information, we need to be application-addicted so that we can live out transformed lives, not just lives of information. And we don't ask how many, we ask what kind of people are we producing are they God's people? And not having an unclear discipleship plan, but have a clear discipleship pathway. These are the key critical models of what it is to have a church that functions according to biblical values. Well, how are we going to do that as we wrap this up? To take the knowledge about God and bring it into a person's heart. How does that happen? Listen to me, Jethro says to Moses, and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. And if you do this, he says, and then he slips in this, and by the way, God commands you. This is not a nice to do. This is not, well, wouldn't it be an interesting business model if we tried this? This is what must be. The traditional structure, of course, is in terms of disciple. How do we do this? We disciple people. This is God's way to reach the world, but how? The traditional structure is that we make known the word that people are to believe. That's biblical vision. And that's great. That's what we do. That's one of the great core values of, of Calvary Baptist Church. In fact, one of our uh, core essentials is that we take God's word seriously. 
And of course we have to. And of course we have to share truth. In fact, the next series is about making sure we're all on the same page with respect to truth. What does God's word say about something? About what we're to believe and to what, what is true? That's biblical vision. It's necessary. What to believe. There's so that we might know what we are to obey. Because what we obey demonstrates to us whether or not we love God. So that's necessary. But what we normally do, or what often we do, or too often we've done, is we teach people what God's Word says, and then we send them out to work. Make known the work they are to do, the biblical mission. Seems to make sense, right? We've got a biblical vision. Now go and do the biblical mission. Get out there and work. But it's very, very fascinating and critically interesting that we notice Jethro's strategy here for a ministry model. Because in between making known the word of God and making known the work of God, I want to show you in the scriptures what it says here. Look at the text in verse 20. Teach them the decrees and laws. And then it says, and the duties they are to perform, right? Did I miss anything? Do say, Pastor, you missed something. I guess if I was in a grade six class, they'd be, you forgot to read something. And show them the way they are to live. Do you see that in the middle? Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way they are to live and the duties they are to perform. The biblical structure is not just biblical vision and then biblical mission, but in between biblical mission is biblical method, systems, Make known the way we are to walk. Show them the way to live. Truth, as Chan rightly said, doesn't change anybody. Truth applied changes people. We can give people the truth and then send them on mission and wonder why they fail the mission. They fail the mission because we really didn't show anybody how to live out the Christian life. That's what's become so critically core here at at Calvary Baptist Church is is to demonstrate what it is to live the biblical way, what it is to serve Christ. Life change to experience. We have that responsibility to demonstrate that we have a life change that we need to experience. We have... Um, the source of power uh, from the, the living God to discover. We, we have reliance on God to learn. We must not overlook the redemptive work that must take place in our hearts and in our lives in our rush to advance the cause of Christ. We must learn how to abide in the King so that Christ can be formed in us. The way we are to walk, Chan says in his right, precedes the work we are to do. How are we to make disciples? Moses, just like Jesus gave us, the same commission. First, go make disciples. Who will make disciples? And baptize them. Tell them to put the uniform on. Identify with Christ. Identify with the mission. Get on the team. Baptism is an identification with Jesus Christ and his message. You're identifying with the fact that you believe that he has saved you. It's a command of God. The ministry model, the biblical ministry model, after, being, after the word is made known to you, let's show each other the way to live. The way to live is to abide by the scriptures. 
An all-in identity. You're in or you're not. And then to teach them to obey my commands. The first one, which was to be baptized. And obeying that, those commands, real life change happens. We have a model around here that's called 111. It's exactly from this text and from Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's the discipleship tax text in the Old Testament, the discipleship text in the New Testament. The first is that we believe that everyone should once a week for sure be in a gathering whereby the information, decrees, and laws, and scripture is, is brought to our awareness. So we know what God wants us to do. We understand who he is. We also believe that, that we need to engage in a in a show-me-life show kind of event, a discipleship community, the disciplines of God, learning what it means to, 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 to abide in Christ and to apply the text of the Scriptures, to know what that looks like, to know how to do that. And then we believe in the third one, which is to get out there and do something for God. Everyone needs to be serving God, giving to God, finding your place, exercising your giftedness, all of that. Because Christ isn't making us into good people. He's restoring the fallen image that sin has ravished our lives that we might be, have Christ formed in us. And so the model might look better like this. Method and mission. When method gets in front of mission, we have our walk with God first before we have our work with God, for God. We have our pilgrimage that we are on before we go out and think about our performance for God. We commit ourselves to authenticity before we go after accomplishment. We, we concern ourselves about character before we think about competence. We're concerned about integrity before we take on initiatives. We, we concern ourselves about rootedness before we can claim to be ready or re have readiness. We learn to abide in Christ before we think of advancing his agenda. And we learn about being before we can be out there doing. And I would add one that I just thought of this morning long before we could type it up there. We should be practicing our fruitfulness, the fruit of the Spirit, before we ever launch out on our giftedness. That's why Paul inserted love in between the teachings of, of giftedness. If you're not practicing the gifts of the Spirit out of love, out of who you are, out of abiding in Christ, then you're just going to annoy people rather than help them. And so, God has called us to this model of how we do biblical ministry. It's as old as the Old Testament and the New Testament and the present current church of Jesus Christ. We live in this stream of teaching. And so we bring back to you again our vision, which is really the vision we found in the scriptures, that we are people of the word of God, that we are people who are committed to learning the ways of God by applying the word of God, and that we are people committed to doing the work of God because we know the word of God and we know the ways of God. It's not a complicated structure, but it is the one that we are passionately committed to because we believe with all of our hearts 
that this is what God wants us to do. Our Father, as we wrap up our time this morning together, we really do thank you that there is clarity in even the ministry model. We are not left wondering what are to be the emphases of a ministry. You have shown us very clearly these three great pillars of a solid ministry. And I pray, O oh God, that we might continue with our passion as people who are committed to the truth of God's Word, committed to learning what it means to abide in the power of Christ so that we might be able to do the work of God with the power of God and the truth of God. I pray as we embark on this series that we'll take very seriously the value of gathering here and testifying to the world that drives by. There's a Mount Sinai experience of people who are grateful for their salvation and have gathered together to say so and to celebrate and thank God for what he's done for us. There is nothing more important than our thankfulness for our salvation and our celebration, O oh God. So help us in Jesus' name as we forge into this year to be able to say by not only what we believe in our mind but how we live in our hearts and in our actions that our God is the great God over all other gods. And that others will notice that in our lives as well, for Jesus' sake. Amen. As I mentioned to you before that I had, in the quest to make sure I was in context with what I was teaching, looked back at a few chapters. And my heart was grieved as I did, looking at God's people quarreling and grumbling and complaining and testing and trying God. I thought, well, I should read ahead a few chapters and see how things are going. I was saddened all over again. After this great experience of Moses going to Mount Sinai, I kept reading, and as I read on, I encountered the people of God again, and you know what they were doing? Making a golden calf. They decided that they would represent God with a limited creature, an idol. What happened? What was wrong with these people? They clearly were being taught the decrees and laws of God. But somehow it had never moved from their heads to their hearts. That's the crisis of Christianity. We can know all these things and all these facts and all these biblical truths, but if it doesn't move to the place of our heart, in an instant, we can be gone. The reason so many people disappear from Christianity is because it never moved from their head to their heart. And the reason I am so passionate about this is because nobody ever told me this. Or if they did, I wasn't listening. And I grew up in church. I learned the great truths of God's Word, and then I was told to get out and serve God, do my duty. But nobody ever showed me how to live. 
Nobody ever showed me how to apply God's word. It was stumble on my own, and that's why here I'm so passionate about this leadership. I want to make sure you know God's word, but I want to make sure it's buried deep in your heart so that you live from your heart, not from your head, because your heart is full of truth, so that you do the work of God from there. They had the right things to believe, but they hadn't yet become what they believed. That's what we want to do. That's what we continue to urge you to do. It's word, his ways, and then his work in that order. Our Father, I pray this morning that we would welcome this truth. And if there's area in our lives where we are shortcutting the three-fold work of God in this matter of word, way, and work, I pray, O oh God, that you might draw us into your truth, that your truth might be hidden in our hearts so that we will live the way you call us to live and not sin against you, O oh God. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.